Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Leah Harding. And I'm Joanna Valencia. Many questions will be answered in the near future on educational issues. And as Florida's 89.1 Danny Gibble reports, Governor Rick Scott gave his opinions and a new commissioner was named. Governor Rick Scott spoke after his most recent cabinet meeting on a variety of issues, but the questions seemed to keep moving back to education. Many questions were asked about public and private schools in respect to public funding. Scott said no matter what school a child goes to, he wants them to get a good education. I believe that we ought to have choice. Uh, I believe that we need to have accountability. Um, I, but I believe parents ought to you know, have some options. Uh, I believe competition works. Um, I want to make sure that, that traditional public schools do well and when I want charter schools to do well. I just want our kids to get a great education. They ought to be, they ought to, look, if, you, if you're going to have state dollars, you ought to have similar standards. We want, look, we want the best education we can for our children. I mean, that's, I mean, I, that's what I want for my daughters. That's what I want for my new grandson. So. This has led people to want more answers on the educational commissioner. Scott offered what qualifications he would want in someone to take the position. You know, I've put out my um, K-12 agenda, uh, College and Careers First, and what I've said is I want to have a commissioner that believes in the agenda that I put out, that understands if we're going to improve education, it's going to be tied to making sure that we have the right amount of funding, uh, making sure that we have accountability, uh, make sure that we treat teachers with respect, um, make sure that we're not just have a program that teaches to the test, and so that's what I've asked for. I've said, look, I want somebody that I can work with that believes in what I'm doing, uh, and I'm, I'm very comfortable that's what the Board of Education will do. Today, they got their answer with the State Board of Education voting unanimously for former Indiana Superintendent Tony Bennett. He will work to figure out a plan for budgeting public schools and for college programs. Scott talks about what he hopes will happen with college prepaid. You saw the numbers today on the prepaid. Uh, on the prepaid, you take my grandson, August. Uh, we've looked at uh, doing prepaid in his case. It's $54,000. $54,000. As all remember, if we want to pay for it up front, I think it's $332 a month. I'm putting that in perspective. Uh, more than 50% of the families uh, in our state make less than $50,000 a year. So I asked them uh, what the numbers would be if tuition only went up at 3% a year, which is basically inflation now, what would it be? And it was uh, $18,000, and I think it's $112 a month if you're going to do it that way. So that's a big change. So if you think about what I think about every day, and that's one, can we get make sure every Floridian has a chance for a job, make sure people can afford to live here, and the fact that they can get a great education for their children so they can live the American dream, this prepaid being 54, almost uh, $54,000 is a big drain. Though these issues were all just speculations from Scott, he feels confident that it will work out for families in Florida. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Danny Gibble reporting. Political commentators Dick Batchelor and Lou Frey had plenty to talk about this year. President Barack Obama got re-elected without a Florida cliffhanger. Obamacare became law, leaving Florida Republicans scrambling to implement it. Mark Simpson from member station WMFE talked with Democrat Dick Batchelor and Republican Lou Frey about the busy year. Lou Frey began the conversation by discussing what he felt was the year's biggest political story. 
Well, it has to be the presidential election. I mean, that's the most important election, not only in the U.S., but in the world. And obviously, Florida was in the middle of the gun sight. I think Dick and I both said, please, this time, somebody <laughs> win it by enough that we don't have hanging chads. And I think we did have an election where Florida did take a little bit of a beating, but not much. There wasn't really any problems with it. Uh, there was a problem in the result, as far as I was concerned. But <laughs> I thought it was perfectly fine. Uh, I made a speech the other day, and I said I had a bad year last week. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dick Batchelor, are you going to surprise me, or are you picking the election, too? No, the election was a big surprise. Uh, parenthetically, the election, I think the big surprise was uh, the president getting 48% of the Cuban vote. Unprecedented. That's a big story. But locally, I have to give you my story. Chris Dorworth, Speaker doesn't gets defeated. That's a big story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, and if we're looking at, say, the local one, uh, to me, the, the, the other big, big, big story was the incredible job the Democratic Party did in organizing and turning out the vote and how in Orange County uh, they just basically swept the, in, into office and, and with people that weren't unknown and, and beat good people. These were not people that did it. They did a heck of a job of organizing and, and riding that wave. Sure, you mentioned that Dorworth race, that uh, kind of an unknown defeat there for uh, for Chris Dorworth. It was. I mean, the candidate ran against him. Keep in mind that uh, he's a former firefighter. They became a lawyer, and the state party tried to get him not to run. The trial lawyers tried to convince him not to run. Mike Clellan. Yeah, but it was very unusual uh, for him to get the money in there. Everybody tried to dissuade him, but uh, it was a big, big surprise. And part of it might have been the sweep, but uh, he's had some uh, – T- Chris Dorworth had more of baggage than uh, Samsonite. <laughs> Wow, Dick Batchelor, you got me. <laughs> well, uh, l- let's look legislatively, and let's also bring in a bit of a national perspective here, because, of course, the president's health care uh, law has been reaffirmed by the Supreme Court. And, of course, now it's up to the state Republican-controlled legislature to try to implement it in Florida. Lawmakers have to consider whether or not to expand the state's Medicaid program, whether or not to create those o- online exchanges where uh, sh- insurance can be shopped for. Lou Fry, what do you see as, as loggerheads uh, looking forward to what the legislature might have to tackle? Well, the first thing you've got to look at is what's going to happen in Washington and with the fiscal cliff. Uh, I mean, that's that's really going to dictate a lot of what's going on because it's not only going to have an incredible impact financially, but psychologically and philosophically it's going to have an impact. So it's really pretty difficult to tell. You tell me what's going to happen on that and what will be thrown into that, and I think I can give you probably a pretty good scenario. Dick Batchelor, is that part of the calculus you think of Tallahassee? Well, Governor Scott and the Republican leadership, we're not going to do Affordable Care Act. In fact, there's a proposed constitutional amendment. We're going to try to override the Supreme Court. No, 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 no way. And now there's an epiphany. There's caught an election. And now they're beginning to cooperate, and they are holding hearings. There's a Senate committee and a House committee. They're looking at how to implement it. The real key is going to be, though, is the cost. Because Florida could get $20 billion of Medicaid monies over the next 10 years with only having to put in $1.5 billion match. A lot of us, I think, they should do that. The question is whether or not the legislature wants to do that. So the price tag on the Medicaid enrollment increase is going to be the biggest bone of contention. Lou Fry, uh, what do you think this means, though, for uh, Republican Governor Rick Scott? Previously, he rejected federal funds for big projects like high-speed rail. But here we see for this uh, in implementing of Obamacare, he's in a position where he kind of feels well, obligated to take that money. Well, the first place, this is the fact that somebody took a position and it's going to be a little different, should be a no-shock to anyone. I mean, you look at many of the Republicans who were talking about not taxing the rich and have been talking about taxing the rich. So, I mean, you've, you've, you've got that uh, going in there. Secondly, uh, Scott wants to be reelected. Uh, and there's a lot of good things in the Obama bill, like, uh, you know, uh, living, living with your parents or predetermined uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, many things are there that 
anybody would, I think, agree to put in. So they're going to cherry pick uh, in terms of, of that and avoid some of the fiscal things. So I, I think that uh, it's going to be a, a, an interesting session because the, the question I have regarding Scott is how much leeway and leverage he has, especially is he going to have opposition in the primary. If he does, he's going to have to act one way. If he doesn't, he can act another way. He's going to have to be really to the right to win the Republican nomination. And one of Gainesville's retail options for grocery store shopping has increased. Trader Joe's officially opened its doors to Gainesville this morning. A large crowd attended despite the rain. Amanda Harvey showed up at 6 a.m. first in line to the grocery store. She helped open the Hawaiian-themed store by cutting a ceremonial lei. She says she's most excited about the new variety it brings to Gainesville. I just like that it's a different option. So... I mean, it's not the regular supermarket, but then it's not like a, a local market either. It's kind of, it's just, it's kind of nice specialty product. Store manager Jody McAuliffe hopes Trader Joe's will offer Gainesville something unique. I think this is going to become a destination for Gainesville. I think this is going to be a great addition to the grocery landscape here in town. Uh, Trader Joe's, we have uh, products from all over the world, uh, but we also have our basics, our eggs, our milk. Uh, the amazing value that we have in Trader Joe's is just phenomenal. Uh, so I think this is going to be the go-to place. Another customer, Sarah Gravenson, says she has waited for years for a local Trader Joe's. As much as I love Fresh Market, I love that Trader Joe's offers similar stuff for cheaper prices. And that's going to be the biggest pull for me. I mean, I'm going to drive all the way from Jonesville out here because it's worth it to me instead of going to Publix. They have great produce here that they sell that ends up being cheaper than you would buy at your average grocery store. So that's, that's the biggest benefit that I can see for me is that they're offering me healthier alternatives for better prices. McCullough says the store's management team was brought in from different states, but 80% of Trader Joe's employees are local residents. Our reporters called one of Trader Joe's main competitors Publix, but received no comment from their headquarters. A David Bridal survey estimated that nearly 7,500 brides will get married today, mainly because of the rare occurrence of today's date, 12-12-12. Today, I spoke with a wedding planner who has seen this day on the horizon for the past year, and also spoke with a bride who chose this special day to say, I do. Today, or 12-12-12 on the calendar, is the last time these digits will repeat themselves in our lifetime. Some consider these repeated digits to be lucky, strange, or something to celebrate. For five couples in South Florida, these numbers will mark the day they tied the knot. Lisa Monero Gonzalez is a senior planner for Weddings in Paradise in Fort Myers and even had a press release advertising her services in anticipation for this day. She secured five weddings and has only maintained one rule going into this, turn no one away. A lot of people who are going to be wanting to get married on this day may not find planners or find people to be able to provide them with services to have this day. So we decided to just go that extra mile and not turn anyone away who wanted to be a part of the festivities. This planner of eight years has not only been putting together every detail for these weddings, but will also be officiating them. She attributes today as being a popular day to get married because of its rarity, since a calendar day like today won't happen again for decades to come. It is the last triple digit. It's the coveted day. This triple digit will never, ever happen again, not quite the way it is now. Um, there'll be 01, 01, 21, 01, but this is, this is completely unique, and that won't be for another 89 years. So it's the last of this lifetime, so it's a very auspicious day.
Genevieve Barrett was one of those who thought today would be the perfect day for a wedding. Soon to be Mrs. Beam, Genevieve will be getting married tonight on the beach in between four other weddings. She has been with her fiancé for 11 years, but just recently decided that 12-12-12 was the perfect time for her to get hitched. We've been together for 11 years. We have two children, six and seven, and it was kind of a last-minute, like, hey, this is the date. We've been waiting a long time, and this date just seemed perfect because there's not going to be another date like it, well, you know, for 89 years. So about 48 days ago, we decided we're getting married. <laughs> Genevieve is from Ingalls, Florida, while the other brides are from across the country, including Indiana and Michigan. Lisa says that despite the long-distance planning, knowing details about her couples has been key in creating their special day. I make them feel important because this is their wedding day. As unorthodox and untraditional as this may be, I still take it very seriously that this is their wedding day and, and that it is special to each one of them. Hoping for a laid-back beach ceremony, Genevieve said not even rain could dampen her wedding. I just hope it doesn't rain, but if it does, it's going to even make it more one-of-a-kind. We'll be walking in the rain. <laughs> Despite there being five weddings, Lisa said each wedding will remain intimate and personalized, making sure each bride feels like she is one of a kind. All of the weddings themselves are intimate, personal, individual ceremonies for our couples. But at the end of the day, after all of the ceremonies are concluded, um, we'll be doing group activities with each of the couples. Activities like signing their marriage certificates and sharing a first dance. For Lisa, this day marks the end of her labor of love. But for the five couples getting married, Lisa said she hopes that getting married today will keep them from ever forgetting their anniversary. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Leah Harding. Two Alachua County Elementary Schools won an award today for taking school lunches to a whole new level. Florida's 89.1 WFTFM Lauren Verno reports on what healthy changes these schools have been focusing on for years. Rawlings and Metcalf Elementary Schools were honored today with the Gold Award for Healthy Schools. Only 12 schools in Florida have earned the program's highest level award for creating a healthier environment. The programs implemented improve food and beverage offerings while teaching students about nutrition values. Deputy Director of the USDA in the Southeast Region was the one who presented the award to the schools today. He says that working with schools to provide healthier food options has become a national goal. Spend about $150 billion a year fighting obesity-related diseases in the United States, and it's the goal of the First Lady's Let's Move campaign to eliminate childhood obesity within a generation. And so she's partnered with the Healthy U.S. School Challenge to provide healthier meals and more physical activity and nutrition education to really make these students understand where their food comes from and make really good choices early in life. Principal at Metcalf Elementary, Patricia Phillips, says that it was a big change for her own eating habits when the school started the program. Personally, myself, I knew I did not eat the way I was supposed to, hamburger french fry girl, and so it actually made me have to be conscious of eating, exercising, because the kids would say, Miss Phillips, you got to try it, and I'd be like, I don't like that. Did you taste it? No. So it, that... It, for me, it was, um, you know, the goal to model for them, and but have to actually believe it because children will know if you're not telling the truth. Phillips says that the students are used to the healthier food and would wonder what's wrong if it did go away. For them, it's just 
okay, we have our fruits and vegetables, and that's what we're supposed to have. So it's not it's not anything different. I think if it were to go away, they'd be like, well, why don't we have these fruits and vegetables? Former principal at Rawlings Elementary, Beth LeClaire, was the principal when the Healthy Schools program started at her school. She says the biggest reward of getting this award was being able to overcome so many hardships in the community. Rawlings is the highest rate of poverty in the school system. We had the highest obesity rate in the school system. And when we decided to take the Healthy Challenge, we thought, well, if we change the perception of our students, they will change the perception of our parents. And it really, it went beautifully. And our children were teaching our parents healthy, healthy diet and where to get good food. And it just was such a positive experience for them. LeClaire says that her goal for kids eating healthier doesn't stop at elementary school. Well, you know, I'm in high school now. And, you know, I keep hearing how difficult it is to do this at a high school. And so why not go for it? Only 1% of schools nationwide have won this award, and both principals are proud to be one of them. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Lauren Verno. Last night, the Alachua County Commission reversed a previous vote that the Archer Bray Trail will indeed run through Hale Plantation. The controversial vote has divided Hale Plantation and much of Alachua County for months. Some said the trail would bring in local business, while others believed it was a waste of money. The commission approved the two-mile trail in a three-to-two vote, which will connect the city of Archer to the University of Florida. Alachua County Commissioner Susan Baird was against the trail running through Hale and said that they should stick to the previously voted upon plan. Some residents and some um, folks that have given some very good suggestions, but because of the late hour, it's going to be very difficult to try and incorporate them into this particular decision. So, again, thank you for everybody's participation with these big decisions. My recommendation, and if you'd like, I'd like to put the motion to go ahead and continue the path as previously had stated down Archer Road um, and Tower, and, um, and that would be my motion. Alternately, Commission Chair Mike Byerly supports the plan which takes the trail through Hale Plantation neighborhood. Even if you don't plan to use the facility, why you would object to people in the community, your own neighbors, who would like to have this kind of facility. Maybe they have children, they'd like to be able to walk to school. I don't understand how it really hurts anyone to have a facility like this. Why would you object to your neighbors, who clearly there are many of your neighbors who want this facility, whatever the ultimate numbers are, to have what every other street in the community has, and that's a safe way to walk and bike on the road. I don't understand how it really hurts anyone. Public streets are expected to have those kind of amenities, and these are major public streets. Alachua County citizen and avid cyclist John Thompson agrees that the trail running through Hale would be positive for the community. There are many places in Florida, um, parts of Miami even, if you can believe that, uh, Dunedin, um, that are coming back alive, where local businesses are thriving again, where crime is virtually disappearing because of the installation of multi-use trails like these. Um, we have pre pre presented all this evidence, and it's overwhelming, um, and yet I just don't see the evidence to the contrary. Another resident, Mr. Weitzel, says he will be directly impacted by the braid trail running through his property. In 91st Street, with the four stop signs, that's probably one of the most dangerous intersections I'm involved in every day. And I would rather go across 34th Street and Archer on a bike before that intersection. So... 
I'm the first house in the preserve, and this affects me immensely. Newly elected Alachua County Commissioner Chuck Chestnut told fellow commissioners it is important to do what is best for all citizens in Alachua County, not individuals. As a county commissioner, I'm going to have to make decisions not based on one particular neighborhood, but, but also the citizens of Alachua County. I'm, I'm here to represent the citizens of Alachua County and find out what is best for all of us, not just for one group of us. Upon completion, the 2.2-mile hail portion of the trail will go down 91st Street and 46th Boulevard to connect Tower and Archer Roads. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Kelsey Kern, live in the studio. Thanks, Kelsey. Attorney General Pam Bondi is working with several agencies to crack down on synthetic drug abuse. Among children and young adults, as FPR's Sasha Corner reports, Bondi filed an emergency rule Tuesday outlawing 22 new substances that are commonly marketed as alternative drugs to things like marijuana. Synthetic drugs can cause psychotic episodes, seizures, and paranoia. And Attorney General Pam Bondi says the substances, commonly known as bad salts, K2, or spice, have been linked to thousands of emergency room visits nationwide. If you look at this, it says not for human consumption. And I've seen many of the packets that we've seized that we know are illegal, and you look on the back of them, and they've now just placed a rubber stamp that says, quote, this is not illegal. <laughs> so um, the sad thing is our children are buying it. Bondi says the substances are usually marketed as an alternative to drugs like ecstasy, marijuana, and cocaine. And she says she's continually disgusted by how they market the products toward children. These are Scooby snacks. You think this is directed at an adult? This is directed at a young child. Look at this one. Cotton candy. And if you touch and feel it, it feels like cotton candy. These are marketed to children. Batman, the Joker. These are disgusting. Her office has been working with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement as well as the Florida Department of Health across the state to crack down on synthetic drug use. FDLE Commissioner Gerald Bailey says law enforcement is making headway on the effort, but at times it can be hard. The main difference or a key difference between these drugs and the illegal drugs that, uh, that we're dealing with, is that these are readily available on the open market, uh, smoke shops, truck stops, convenience stores, and now over the internet. He says since Bondi's announcement Tuesday morning, law enforcement officers across the state have been visiting the retailers and asking them to willingly surrender their product. Those who refuse could face a third-degree felony charge. Bondi has worked with the Florida legislature to outlaw similar substances before, but manufacturers keep producing the drugs with new chemicals. She says she plans to continue working with Florida lawmakers to ban the 22 additional drugs permanently. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Cordner. And the Alachua County Sheriff's Office is also helping to enforce the ban of synthetic drugs. Spokesman Art Forge says the ban enacted yesterday is just part of a process that's already been set in place for years. Synthetic drugs have been around quite some time, and every time, because they're chemically engineered, uh, the, the compounding of those chemicals changes just a little bit. So it, it's nothing new. It's just some new substances that have uh, spun off of uh, other uh, 
bans that have been put into place. Forgy says these synthetic drugs could be just as dangerous, if not more, than their natural arts alternatives. Several of these substances were banned many years ago uh, because the, in the laboratory they're able to create and change them just a little bit and it makes a new compound. Uh, we're always chasing the laboratory as to what is illegal and what is not because they chemically change them just a little bit each time. Synthetic drugs could be sold at head shops, gas stations, or liquor stores. Yesterday, every store carrying them was notified of the illegality of continuing these sales. So far, the Alachua County Sheriff's Office has been reaching out to make sure these products have been taken off the shelves. We actually uh, sent our crime prevention unit out with the uh, information to start distributing it to convenience stores and head shops within the county yesterday. So. Uh, hopefully, uh, we've made them all aware that this is a banned substance, banned of the banned substances, and uh, they will take them off their shelves if they had any. We did not find any yesterday at all when we uh, went around and, and distributed this information. But Forgy says the crackdown will differ depending on the area. It's going to be up to each state to decide what they want to ban and, and what they see as harmful and then uh, choose how they uh, want to go about banning it. Florida A&M University is under probation for the second time in less than five years. FPR's Lynn Hatter reports the sanction results from turmoil at the school following the hazing death of a drum major and missing and incomplete audits. Five years ago, Florida A&M University found itself being placed on accreditation probation. The reason? Financial problems and a series of blistering state audits. Now the university is in a similar place again. Call it a really bad case of deja vu. Uh, there's got to be a message here. And the message I think that Sachs is attempting to send is uh, we've got to get the Florida A&M University house in order and not for the short term, for the long term. Failure is not an option and cannot be an option here. That's Frank Brogan, Chancellor of the state's public university system. The Southern Association of Colleges and Schools, or SACS, is FAMU's accrediting body. And following its annual meeting, SACS officials slapped FAMU with probation, citing a number of problems that have cropped up at the university during the past year. First, the obvious one, the hazing death of a university band drum major. FAMU's interim president, Larry Robinson, says the school was docked for failing to provide a healthy and safe environment for its students. This um, issue still stems from uh, the hazing uh, death of uh, Mr. Robert Champion. Champion died last November after being beaten in a hazing ritual aboard a bus in Orlando. His death also sparked state investigations, one which delved deep into the finances of Florida A&M University's Marching 100 Band. That investigation uncovered more than 100 non-students who were allowed to participate and travel with the band on the school's dime. The same investigation also called out the underreported theft of student band fees from several years ago. And in an unrelated problem, the university was also docked for a series of internal audits done by its former audit director that contained missing, incomplete, and even fraudulent information. Robinson says he believes those audits are a prime reason for the probation sanction. The fact that those audits, you know, were inappropriately done or or, or not at all, could have led them, and I'm, as I said, I'm just being speculative to the 
decision of the university being out, out of compliance on that matter. Probation uh, is a failure to correct deficiencies or to make satisfactory progress toward compliance with our principles of accreditation. Pamela Cravey represents the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges. Cravey says it's not one single thing that led the group to its decision, but the combination of several different problems at the university. She says the audits, the finances, and the hazing scandal have prompted a closer look at the school. Well, you know, they're still accredited, and I think that's the critical thing that I always want to be sure people, especially parents, realize that the institution has not lost their accreditation. It's just giving them 12 months to correct some problems. FAMU officials have been working over the past year to address the problems. The school's new audit director comes from the state of Florida's own audit office. FAMU has also instituted anti-hazing seminars and workshops and a new anonymous reporting system. The school is also working on tightening its financial controls. But there's still a lot more the school will have to do. Another independent report by the Florida Board of Governors, which oversees FAMU on a state level, will release its own report on the school's governance status next week. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Lynn Hatter in Tallahassee. At the Capitol yesterday, Florida Governor Rick Scott recognized a Medal of Honor recipient. Scott says the late Staff Sergeant Robert James Miller saved the lives of his fellow troop members through his actions on the field. Rob was relentless against the terrorists and suppressed the enemy forces with grenades and gunfire. He engaged the enemy so much that he attracted most of the gunfire and made the ultimate sacrifice for his team. Scott says the people of Florida will be forever thankful to Miller's courage, commitment, and sacrifice. Miller's name will also be added to the Wall of Honor at the Florida Capitol. And despite the weather, it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas at only at Florida's Capitol. Regan McCarthy reports that the governor and first lady lit the Capitol Christmas tree yesterday morning. The tall, lush red cedar just outside the governor's office in the Florida Capitol building was donated from a Florida tree farm owned by the Camacho family and located just outside of Tallahassee. Commissioner Adam Putnam presented the tree to the governor. The red cedar is native to Florida, so this is something that uh, that you might see in the woods as you were walking one of our state forests. Putnam says trees such as pines and cypress also grow in the state. And he says Florida even has a program that lets families pick trees out from certain state forests to bring home as their own holiday decor. He says the Christmas tree industry is a big one in Florida. We tend to think of, of the Christmas tree industry only being a, a northern or a Carolina type of industry, but it, but it does have a strong presence here in Florida. And uh, we are thrilled that there are entrepreneurs like the Camachos who uh, came here from Germany and ended up in Miami. And, and then they decided to continue to move north to fulfill their dream to begin a Christmas tree farm. As many as 14,000 Christmas trees are sold in Florida each year, with about 100 different farms operating across the state. Scott says having the tree near his office reminds him of his own special memories of Christmas with his family. I think all of us can think about our childhood and having Christmas trees and just the, the fun part of the holiday season. First Lady Anne Scott hung the first ornament on the tree. It's a commemorative decoration highlighting some of Florida's rich history. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Regan McCarthy. And Christmas signs are not just in the capital but all across Florida. Salvation Army bell ringers decked out stores and Christmas 
music streaming from speakers. But through it all, the Florida sunshine, striking an odd note for some of us whose impressions of the season were formed from our northern childhoods. Here is more on a first Florida Christmas from Valerie Alker. I was 15 my first Florida Christmas. My brother and I had just moved here to live with our dad. Always an early adopter, dad had surprised us with the latest thing in Christmas trees. A six-foot-high, shiny aluminum confection illuminated by a spotlight on the floor attached to a translucent color wheel. We finished off decorating by filling a large vase with Florida holly, today better known as Brazilian pepper. Christmas Eve day was sunny and warm. Mockingbirds sang in the mango tree. Hibiscus bloomed. Mullet jumped in the canal behind our house. The air was scented with jasmine. I felt like I was in a movie, but the day also felt a little flat. I miss the smell of a real Christmas tree, the sound of boots crunching on snow. But most of all, I missed my grandparents in northern New York. We'd always spent Christmas Eve at their house. My grandmother, who we called Ga, was one of those old-fashioned grandmas. She darned socks and saved stale bread for stuffing and bread pudding. And every year, right after Thanksgiving, she started her Christmas baking. First the fruitcakes, because they have to rest before being eaten. They were a treat that seemed to appeal only to adult palates. But then came the cookies. Phil cookies, gingerbread men, decorated cutout sugar cookies, and my favorites coconut macaroons. Most were put away until Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve supper was always oyster stew, which we loathed, but mustered through in anticipation of dessert. Open season on those cookies. There was a little ritual. We'd gather around my grandmother, seated in her platform rocker in the front room, and sing Christmas carols. Gah couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. I can still produce her flat, off-key version of Away in a Manger and get a laugh from my brother. Then we gorge ourselves on cookies, and after laying out a plate for the reindeer, go to bed with the sugar high and visions of sugar plums and books and sleds and skates dancing in our heads. So as my first Christmas Eve day in Florida drew to a close, I was homesick. My dad was making one of the three things he knew how to cook for our supper, London broil, which was tough but tasty, and he picked up a package of Oreos. Then the doorbell rang, special delivery, a box postmarked Alexandria Bay, New York. The writing on the box was in Gaz's backhand scrawl. We ripped it open to reveal a car's biscuit tin. That same tin had been doing duty, holding surplus cookies in my grandmother's kitchen for as long as I could remember. Inside was a smell of Christmas, spicy and sweet. There was a row of coconut macaroons on top. After supper, Dad put an Andy Williams Christmas record on the turntable and settled into his usual spot on the couch. It was a warm night. The air conditioner was humming, but it was Christmas Eve, so Dad said we could light a fire in our fireplace, too. We collected driftwood, and the fire burned bright. That was a report from WUSF's Valerie Alker's First Christmas. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Leah Harding. And I'm Juliana Valencia. Stay tuned for a news update from NPR and the WUFTFM news team.